Today's episode of Dog Nation Daily is brought to you by Meriwether and Tharp, your source for Georgia divorce. Find them online at theatlantadivorceteam.com. Presented by DogNation.com, this is Dog Nation Daily, the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans. Here's your host, Brandon Adams. I do not believe that surprised is too strong of a word to use for a conversation we're about to have and the reaction I had to that conversation. Now, I have loved our Dog Nation roundtables here this week. I feel like Jeff Sintel, Connor Riley, Mike Griffith, they've really brought a lot of interesting content to the forefront. And as I was mentioning on video a moment ago, there's a dynamic occurs that when you get people into a conversation together, it's not scripted. You don't really know what anybody's going to say. And so, therefore, the conversation goes to a perhaps different place you might expect. Today is an example of that. The topic I wanted to address is, because we've been doing near the end of these roundtable discussions the last few days, including today here in a moment, our over-under predictions. Now, these are not like the official final predictions. As I've said now many times, this is not like in stone. These are just sort of early lanes. But, you know, kind of early thoughts about the season win totals, regular season only, of course, uh, for some of these SEC teams. And I wanted to do kind of something on that involving Georgia as well. The 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 narrative here is, is that on paper, Georgia is playing a tougher schedule than it's perhaps ever played before. I believe that's true, even though, as we've kind of seen from some of the early points, spread data that's out there. Georgia is about a two-touchdown favorite or so over Clemson. They are a point-and-a-half favorite on the road at Texas, three-and-a-half-point favorites over both Alabama and Ole Miss. Georgia's still a point-spread favorite in these kind of marquee games, but in some cases sort of a narrow favorite. And no doubt when you're going on the road to a preseason top-10 Ole Miss, a reigning SEC champ Alabama, a college ball playoff team like Texas, when those are your road games, you're playing a really tough schedule. What I have been saying is, you know, probably such a tough schedule that the idea of undefeated in the regular season, I don't quite know that's a possibility. In fact, I've said before, I don't know that we'll have an undefeated college football playoff national champion for the foreseeable future because not only is Georgia playing a much tougher schedule, but most of the other top teams kind of are as well. However, not everyone on our Dog Nation panel apparently agrees with that. There are still some belief out there that even though Georgia is playing an unprecedentedly tough schedule, that the possibility of Georgia going 12-0, and navigating that schedule without a loss, apparently that's a lot more possible in the minds of some of my colleagues than it would be for me. I think this is really fun. Uh, perhaps you would used to be uh, hearing me being the most optimistic, maybe with good reason when it comes to Georgia. But in this particular case, there are a couple of people on the Dog Nation team here who are a little bit more optimistic about Georgia's chances this season than even I am. So this is a good conversation. We'll do it as a part of our Dog Nation roundtable coming up. But before that, let me remind you, it's Dog Nation Daily presented by Meriwether and Tharp today. Now, while the conversation about what Georgia can do in 2024 and the record it could have, that's a really fun thing to be discussing and talking about. There's obviously in life other conversations that are nowhere near as fun. And perhaps when it comes to your marriage, the relationship that you're involved with, perhaps your level of optimism about its future is not, frankly, as probably as optimistic as some of us can be about our favorite teams from time to time. Maybe you've tried to do what you can do to to salvage that relationship, but you just realize that it's, you know, it's heading towards uh, uh, an unhappy, unpleasant conclusion. And I do take that really seriously. And hopefully after all these years of talking about my friends at Meriwether and Tharp, you know that I don't treat this as a light subject. I don't treat this as a simple, frivolous thing. No, there's a lot of heavy weight around the concept of divorce. Maybe you've been through a divorce. You can speak to that firsthand. Or maybe you have the growing fear and anxiety that you could be going through a divorce. Honestly, I really do pray for you. And I really do uh, sympathize that 
what a horrible, terrible situation that must feel like to you. Scary, confusing, perhaps. But while I can't make that go away from for you, the one thing I can do is give you a strong advocate that can be on your side and really walk with you through this. That's true if you live in the Atlanta area, but also now that's true if you're across the state of Georgia there as well. There's a Meriwether and Tharp office now in Savannah. There's coming soon in Athens. That's why that Meriwether and Tharp really can say, we've said for a long time, your source for Georgia divorce. The website now reflects that, georgiadivorceteam.com. So listen, I would invite you to go to that website. I'd invite you to really kind of Check me out on what I say. The old line about trust but verify. Maybe you trust my recommendation, but I want you to verify that for yourself there too. Look at the free resources that are available, the blog posts, the podcasts. Uh, you know, Set yourself up for that free initial consultation with one of those Meriwether and Tharp attorneys. Really have that discussion and lay out your concerns. Sometimes in life, it's just sort of nice to hear someone or have someone hear your story. That's what uh, that a Meriwether and Tharp attorney wants to do for you. And then you can make the decision to hire Meriwether and Tharp. And when it comes to that choice, the other thing you'll see on the website is an array of options in terms of how you get cost certainty in terms of how the divorce process can be paid for, which is obviously a big part of this there as well. That's something that Meriwether and Tharp knows is on your mind. They want to try to meet you uh, when it comes to that there as well. So once again, online, it's georgiadivorceteam.com. That's the website, georgiadivorceteam.com. All across the state of Georgia now, Meriwether and Tharp, your source for Georgia divorce. All right. So as I said before, it's our final day of our Dog Nation roundtable. Georgia facing a very tough regular season schedule. I would have perhaps said so tough that a loss is seemingly coming somewhere, but not everybody agrees. Great way to start things off on our Dog Nation roundtable here today on Dog Nation Daily, presented by Meriwether and Tharp. We hope you enjoy it. And here on Dog Nation Daily, presented by Meriwether and Tharp, the final day of what's been a great run the last few days of our first ever Dog Nation Roundtable, bringing on Mike Griffith, Jeff Sintel, Connor Riley, and addressing some of the big topics about Georgia ahead of the upcoming season, also looking at the rest of college football there as well. And specifically today, here's what I want to do. We've been talking this week about the FanDuel over-unders. I believe FanDuel gets the credit for the first uh, odds maker out there to put out season win totals for the upcoming season. Georgia sitting at 10.5 for this upcoming year, which is about a game lower than it's been in recent years, and exactly a game lower than it was a year ago. Georgia for the most part, it's been kind of around 11 and a half when it comes to a regular season projection the last couple of years. But because of a tougher schedule this year, that number is a little bit lower. So I think it gives us a chance to kind of zero in on this and drill down on it more about exactly what we do expect Georgia's regular season record to be for 2024. So Mike Griffith, today, let me uh, start with you. What do you project the win-loss record in this year's regular season to be for UGA? Wow. You know, I guess right now uh, I'd say 11 and one. Um, and that's, and again, there's not a, a particular game. I'd say the dogs are going to lose. Uh, but, and that's obviously, I think they're going to play in the SEC championship game and and I think they're going to win that. But between uh, Texas, Alabama, Clemson, Tennessee, at Kentucky, at Old Miss, uh, somewhere on the line, one stumble. So give me 11 and one. Uh, Connor, you agree with uh, Mike on eleven and one being the number there? No, I'm going to go ahead and say it with my chest. I think Georgia goes twelve and zero in the regular season once again. I think they find a way to beat Texas. I think they beat Alabama early on in the season. And to your point, you previously made. I don't know what the depth is going to look like for Ole Miss late in the season. It's a tough road schedule, but I think Georgia actually kind of relishes that fact and the fact that they are going to have a little bit more difficult schedule on a week-to-week -week basis. You hear the excitement that players have when they do know it's a big game, 
And while that might add up, Georgia's as well set up from a depth standpoint as anyone to handle it. So give me 12-0 and 0 Georgia uh, in the regular season for a fourth straight year. That is an awesome take, man. That is so awesome. And I will tell you this, is that I, I think I referenced this at the end of yesterday's show, that my opinion about the Georgia schedule has changed a little bit over the course of the last couple of weeks. I was definitely overstating the the difficulty of the schedule when we first started kicking it around and the fact that it looks so different we're, we're used to seeing you know, on the road at Texas, on the road at Alabama, on the road is what's going to be a preseason top 10 Ole Miss, neutral site Clemson. The truth is, Georgia is a two-touchdown favorite against Clemson. They're a three-and-a-half-point favorite against both Alabama and Ole Miss right now. They're a, only a narrow favorite uh, against Texas, but a point-spread favorite nonetheless at, at a point-and-a-half. At one point in time, I think I even made the case of if you gave me 10-2 and two right now, I might take it as a Georgia fan. Well, I definitely wouldn't take 10-2 and two right now. Would I maybe take 11-1? and one? I guess I probably would, but it's not inconceivable that Georgia could be undefeated. I will tell you, though, Jeff, I am not as optimistic as Connor is. My actual projection would be 11-1. I believe there's a loss coming there somewhere, but I'm no longer as likely to say 10-2 and two or something like even less ambitious than that. I think 11-1 and one is the number, but interesting to hear Connor being willing to go out there and say, you know what, tougher schedule no matter what, still like Georgia to go undefeated. What do you make of that? I got to agree with Connor. Wow. I don't see the loss there. I, I look at it this way. Everybody's going to say when you conservatively say, well, Georgia's going to stumble somewhere. There's going to be a, a loss somewhere. Georgia lost, according to one member of this panel, the greatest player in the history of their football program last year. They didn't hiccup. They didn't stumble. They kept winning. The reason I want to add a little bit more hot sauce to this take is there's no Nick Saban at Alabama. We really don't know what what Texas is going to look to look like day to day in the SEC. Georgia gets the benefit of getting them later in the year. I think Carson Beck takes the lead. And I think at every position, except for the vital quarterback spot, Georgia is kind of injury proof in a lot of areas where you don't have a tremendous drop off. Now you could maybe say there's not another Michael Williams. There's probably not another Malachi Starks. Got it. But the drop off where Georgia's going to is going to be as good as anybody else has in the SEC. And, you know, Connor uses that chest phrase when he wants to make people know that I'm I'm 10 toes down on it and I believe in it. I'd probably give a Ric Flair woo to mine as well. I think Georgia has advanced in the program where the regular season as crazy it might as it might sound with analytics and just law of averages, a fourth consecutive 12-0 regular season. I know those beat writers are going to be looking that up in the middle of the year, tracking the most consecutive regular season wins since a long time. I think the dogs have it again this year. Mike, imagine me being the one of being more of the wet blanket here in a conversation about what Georgia can be for the upcoming season. I obviously believe that Georgia – very much can win the national championship here this year. But I've also said, I don't know that we see an undefeated national champion again in the foreseeable future. So the notion that Georgia would go 12 and 0 to me, the number one opponent's not Texas or Alabama. It's just the weight of the schedule overall that eventually there's a compound interest that catches up to you at some point in time. You know, I'm excited to hear my colleagues talk about the possibility of being undefeated in the regular season, even as I myself have a little bit of a harder time making that case. I just think the day and age of an undefeated national champion is kind of over for college football. Not to say that it can't happen, but I think that it's highly unlikely to happen. What do you make of the, uh, 
I, I guess, very optimistic appraisals that both Jeff and Connor offer there. Well, I mean, I can understand it because on an individual basis, it's hard to pick out a game and say this is a game that George is going to lose. And and I get that. I mean, uh, you know, when we look at this team and how Kirby Smart has built the depth, I know Jeff is is bullish on uh, the recruiting that's been done, um, even if they some of those freshmen didn't maybe have the impact last year that we thought they might as edge rushers. Uh, we know that Connor is is very high on Carson Beck and comparing him with Joe Burrow, uh, that would explain his pick. He's got a lot of faith that Carson is going to advance his game to the extent he can compensate for having a, a relatively ordinary supporting cast outside of ETN and and Dylan Bell every now and then. Unfortunately, not against Alabama in the SEC title game, but in other games. So I understand where both of them are coming from. It, it's the unknown, B.A. It's, 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 I'm kind of with you. Like right now, as things sit, if everything stays like it is, but you know, how often has Georgia had a quarterback go through two seasons without an injury? You can say Stetson Bennett, but I would argue that Stetson was actually injured part of the 2021 season, uh, particular, excuse me, uh, 2022 season, particularly near the end of it, which is why I thought he struggled in a couple of games. Um, so I think it's hard to keep your quarterback clean for two straight seasons. Uh, I think it's hard to predict uh, who may or may not rise up or what the circumstance might be. Um, how good will Brock Vandergriff be at Kentucky? Is that a, is that a sneaky, is that a sneaky tough game? Uh, Clemson out of the gate at Texas, where they seem to have neutralized the Georgia fan support on the road with the F1 event also taking place. It's going to be hard for Georgia fans to travel in Tuscaloosa um, with, you know, Kalen DeBoer, somewhat of a wild card. And um, we've seen, uh, you know, the Alabama seemingly get the breaks before in games against Georgia. Uh, so it, how, how much improvement does Tennessee show enough to be trouble? Uh, can Auburn be competitive in Sanford stadium as they were last year at home? Uh, all it takes is one slip. There's not much of a margin for error in the SEC, hence my prediction. But at the same time, uh, Jeff knows the personnel well, feels like they've recruited extremely well. Uh, Connor feels strong about Carson Beck. Uh, if Carson does get better, uh, that's a scary thought because he was pretty good last year. So I get their picks. I, I This is kind of one of those flip-the-coin deals for me. Transitioning to a new topic, Georgia this year, adding a little bit more in the way of the transfer portal than we're kind of used to it doing and a lot of these guys you would think have a chance to make a pretty significant impact at UGA many of them bringing in a lot of high level experience some of that experience in the case of London Humphreys also coming in the SEC so Connor Riley if I were to tell you to look at the entire list of transfers on their way to UGA who's the guy most likely to be I guess the most exciting for Georgia here this season is it Trevor Etienne a name that came up earlier this week already yeah uh ETN, I think, is the most accomplished player coming in. Uh, I think he's the one that, because of the fact that a guy like Ben Urasek, who's not getting here until this summer, the fact that ETN is already on campus, I think, is going to help him adapt. The fact that you do lose your top two leading rushers, you have the opportunity there, along with the fact that I don't think that there's a running back that has accomplished as much as Oscar Delp has at Georgia. So, uh, I think ETN is the pretty easy answer there. I'll be interested to see of the three wide receivers that they brought in, Colby Young, Michael Jackson the third, and London Humphreys, which sort of one separates themselves and who's able to find a role and play for this team this season. But ETN is, I think, the most obvious answer here. So, Jeff, along those lines, if I force you to say somebody else other than Etienne, because I know you made the case for Trevor Etienne with a different topic earlier this week, if Etienne were to, so to speak, be off the board, who would be your next answer? 
Yeah, that's another thing. When I sit there and think about the Georgia roster, and it's maybe somewhat moneyball to try and replace the production of maybe what Ladd McConkey gave Georgia. But remember, Georgia won a lot of games last year without a premium performer at Ladd. Who Ladd was actually, you know, sometimes he played, sometimes he struggled through games and endured. But if I can't say ETN, um, I actually look to your set. I do because I think he's, let's face it, he's going to pick up the offense. He's a graduate student at Stanford. Um, and then also he was in the 2020 recruiting class. He's been around football. He knows the speed of the game, even if it is that pack two now, the remnants of his conference. Um, I love his athleticism. One of the points I had about your sec that I don't think a lot of people know is that he was this, his high school basketball player of the year when he was in high school uh, in California. He was an overall athlete of the year for his classification as well, not just classification basketball player, 6'4", 245. I think Georgia looked at its tight end position and said, we had a big injury last year with 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 Brock Bowers. What happens if we have a big injury at the top with perhaps a Delp? Do you have a veteran, big body, blocker, physical, athletic? I like the Yurasek pick because you heard you hear Jim Nagy at the at the uh, Jim Nagy mentioned over the past week from the Senior Bowl that he thought Todd Hartley picked up a NFL type tight end, and I agree with him. Mike, how about for you? Who will Georgia's most exciting transfer be? Well, I mean, I, I do think Etienne is is the obvious answer, but one of the guys that I'm really looking forward to seeing and I think it's going to be a red zone target is is Colby Young. Um, you know, this is a big uh, athletic receiver, and I guess in my mind I'm, I'm having sh shades of Lawrence Cager and the impact that Lawrence had when he transferred from Miami and the big games, the catches against Notre Dame, uh, coming back from the injury, uh, Undertaker style with the the coffin tweet leading into Florida was kind of a fun moment. I'm hoping Colby Young can have that sort of impact and and be that red zone guy that uh, you know can give you know uh, can give Carson Beck uh, a dangerous target in the red zone. You know that 50 50 ball that you know George Pickens you know once seemed to come up with. So uh, Etienne is the answer, but other than him, I, I guess I'm, I'm most bullish on Colby Young. Uh, you know, I think those are interesting answers, and obviously I do believe if Trevor Etienne's not the guy, then something's probably gone wrong for Georgia. You kind of wonder, <laughs> okay, what does that mean for UGA if Etienne's not having that kind of season? I think that's fair. I do want to mention London Humphreys here, though. I think that Humphreys was one of the two most productive freshman receivers in the entire SEC this past season. I think that experience matters. I think that Humphreys is coming here to play, and I don't know how good that ends up being, but this is a guy that I think has a chance to make a real impact for Georgia, maybe even – if you make me choose between just the receivers alone, I believe that Humphreys would probably be my pick of of those guys there as well. So Etienne, the obvious answer, and Humphreys may be the next guy on my list, at least for right now. Shifting gears to something a little bit more national in focus, Georgia is the preseason number one team. They are the favorite to win uh, a national championship right now. We've already heard a couple of panelists here today think they'll go 12-0 and in the regular season there as well. But if we look at the other teams that could win this year's national championship, and Connor Riley, I want to begin with you on this. Of those teams, who do you think the biggest threat to Georgia is right now? I'm going to take, and this might surprise some people, I'm actually going to take the Oregon Ducks. Wow. Uh, look, Danton Lanning has got to find a way, I think, to to win some of those big games. I think his most impressive win to this point is probably a home win over Utah this past season. But you look at the talent that they continue to bring in, the way they continue to build out, 
Uh, Evan Stewart, the addition there is big. You bring in two quality quarterbacks in my mind and Dylan Gabriel, who's played a ton of football and you bring in uh, Dante Moore from UCLA. Uh, they have some continuity on that coaching staff. I, I think Lanning has been poised to take a big step. And most importantly, they get Ohio State at home this season. And while, yes, they could possibly see Ohio State once again uh, in the Big Ten championship game, and I think Ohio State is going to obviously be a very popular pick, I think Oregon, with what they've done, both on a recruiting standpoint and from the transfer portal there as well, I think is a very attractive option. And, and so with the way they've continued to build there, this is going to be Lanning's third season in Eugene. I think they're a team that, while well, yes, they have to win the big game. I think that game against Ohio State on, I believe, October 5th is going to be absolutely massive uh, for Lanning and obviously Ryan Day there as well. But I think we know what Ryan Day kind of is, and I think Lanning's got a little bit more ceiling to him. So give me the Oregon Ducks as a team that I think can win a national championship this year. Mike's got another work assignment. We may lose him in a minute, but I believe he's still with us here right now. Mike, biggest threat to Georgia from the national landscape, or even within the SEC, who is the biggest threat to Georgia that you see? Yeah, you know, I understand why Connor would go with Oregon with that game being in Eugene, Oregon. Um, but one thing Connor said uh, uh, is worth repeating. We do know who Oregon is, and, and Oregon is a team that's one field goal away from beating Georgia and probably winning the national championship. Uh, I thought that uh, the Ohio State staff and Ryan Day did a very good job. Um, and we also know who Oregon is, and and so does Kirby Smart, and that's why they beat Oregon 49-3. to um, So we're, I'm getting into my go-for-the-flow, compete-with-Connor mode, and I really don't mean to. But listen, I like Dan Lanning, too. The truth of the matter is, is I'm bullish on Oregon. Uh, I think Oregon is going to be in the Final Four. I think that is a fantastic pick. I, I could go with Oregon just as easily. I'd go with Ohio State because they have the home game. But my goodness, uh, Ohio State is – you know, spent everything on this team and they're, they're throwing everything, but Lamborghinis at their players these days, it seems like, uh, and there's only so many of those to go around. So give me Ohio state as the biggest threat sooner or later, they're going to be, Michigan's going to be down. They're losing basically their entire offense as well as their head coach. Um, I'm with Connor. Oregon is a great pick. I think the winner of the Oregon Ohio state game is probably the biggest threat. Um, for Georgia to win a national championship. Mike, can I give you a quick contrarian take here for a moment? I don't love Chip Kelly as Ohio State offensive coordinator. Now, the pieces seem like they should work. Quenchon Judkins and Trevion Henderson and uh, Howard, the quarterback, sort of running an Oregon-style offense the way that we used to see him do. But if you're Ohio State, like the one thing that does work is the play calling. Now, they've had a hard time being tough enough. They've had a hard time sort of making clutch plays late in games. But no one's ever said Ryan Day's not a good play caller. And so now – you're going to run a Chip Kelly offense, something I would say is a total reinvention of what you have been doing for a guy that doesn't handle pressure very well during his career. Um, I'm going to be a little bit contrarian here, Mike, and say I don't know that I love, as high profile as the move was, I don't know that I love Chip Kelly at the helm of the Ohio State offense, even though the pieces seem like they match up for it pretty well. Yeah, it's very fair. He certainly know Mike Bobo. I don't know if that's a joke or what, but I, I at this stage, I'll take Bobo over uh, Chip Kelly. I think Kelly's a little bit of a weirdo. Uh, Jeff, how about for you? Biggest <laughs> weirdo. I, th I think he is. Uh, biggest threat to uh, to Georgia, as far as you know. I think it's Ohio State. I think they, you know, we talked about, you, we just discussed weirdo stuff with Chip Kelly as offensive coordinator. I think, I think the most important position 
Ryan Day kept for himself. And I think he's the NIL coordinator at Ohio State. And listen, it's it's not just Caleb Downs. It's not just Will Howard. And you you got continuity issues with new quarterbacks, very talented quarterbacks, experienced season quarterbacks, but it's still a continuity issue with Oregon as their starting quarterback. But you look at Ohio State, I see about three or four guys that could have been second or third round picks that came back for the Buckeyes because they wanted to finally maybe beat Michigan. They wanted to get that taste out of their mouth that was like unsatisfying for their careers in Columbus. But you see a lot of players on this Ohio State team, man. And maybe they've got everything in the world to play for now, but you look at a lot of pieces there. The fact that they brought all these guys back, I think Travion Henderson is, has the ability to be, to be one of the most special running backs in college football as long as he can stay healthy. You add Will Howard, who has definitely seen some snaps in his in his college football career. You say to yourself, can Will Howard be as productive as Kyle McCord was last year? I think he can do that. And that's why I, I just think Ohio State's the team to look for there, guys. Well, hold on. Yeah, if I'm just yeah, I, go ahead, Connor. Then I'm gonna have to rebuke him for something else, but you go first. I'm extremely disappointed in you, Jeff. Earlier this week you talked about the importance of the offensive tackle position and the need to recruit that there. Ohio State's not good enough on the offensive line. Uh, they haven't developed it well. I think since Paris Johnson walked through there, uh, they haven't recruited this position quite at the same level. I mean, they were starting a San Diego State uh, transfer at that position last year. And by the way, uh, you know who their starting center is going to be? Yeah, the guy that's going to be McFarland from uh, it's going to be the guy, Seth McLaughlin. Yeah, McLaughlin, yeah. Yeah, the center that couldn't snap. Uh, that's not a great recipe for success in my opinion there. Uh, so I understand all that. I'd point out as great as Travion Henderson is, as great as Quinchon Junkins is, Emeka Abuka, the wide receivers that they brought in, Jeremiah Smith, Carnell Tate. How many footballs does the Ohio State offense get to play with? They only need one. That's the one they need to throw to J.J. Smith. That's the only one they need. Uh, I get you, but I mean, you can go up and down Oregon's, Oregon's roster and find some holes and you gotta you gotta remember uh, Ohio State might win differently. They might win a lot of games twenty to three, twenty to seven. Well, they're better defensively than they have been. There's no doubt about that. But the worst thing that that I think you said was the idea of do you think Will Howard can be as good as Kyle McCord? As if that was some sort of endorsement. McCord is gone because he wasn't good enough. And frankly, I'm not so sure Howard is an upgrade if you go back and look at his performance in uh, Manhattan uh, prior to coming to Ohio State. But just being good as Kyle McCord gets you the same result that Ohio State got this past year, which is on the outside looking in when it comes to college football playoff. That's the big issue here. By the way, this is about college football a little bit of a you know a larger you know frame on this too. You know the idea that you're going to go out and save yourself with a transfer quarterback. Teams just aren't really doing that. They're grabbing the best they can find, and right now that's like a dude from Kansas State. That's a big issue here in the sort of all-in year for Ohio State where they have to win because Michigan's the reigning champ and because Brian Day might get fired in the sort of all-in win-or-else type of year. The best transfer quarterback they could find was a guy named Will Howard. That is very telling to me, Jeff. B.A., I've got a quick take for you here. Please. Uh, technically speaking, Will Howard is not the best transfers quarterback that Ohio State brought in. And when Ohio State makes that playoff, which I expect them to do, they're still, I, I think they're, them and Oregon are right there as the second and third best teams in the country. Will Howard will not be the starting quarterback in Ohio State's final game of the Ooh, season. Ooh, I like this. I think it is going to be Julian Sane. I think the appeal of him as a quarterback prospect was his high floor, his ability to come in and play right away, potentially. 
I think if Will Howard struggles or this Ohio State offense, look, I know they're going to want to try and win games 20 to 3, 27 to 10, things along the lines of that. And that's going to help. If they're not dynamic on the offensive side of the ball, like, and we're similar to what they were a season ago, it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if, if Sane is a guy that gets snaps for them this coming season. All right. So I love the take. I think that's awesome. Obviously, Julian saying sort of a last minute switch from. Alabama to Ohio State. I do believe that counts as a transfer. I do believe he was enrolled uh, at Alabama when he made that move. But that just reinforces for me, Connor, the point I made a little earlier. Nothing about Ohio State's behavior at offensive coordinator makes any sense to me whatsoever. I feel like Julian Sayan is a great fit to run the Ryan Day offense. I, I think that Chip Kelly and Julian Sayan are sort of oil and water, are they not? You know, it'll be interesting there. I'm maybe a little bit higher on Chip Kelly in terms of what he might be able to bring and what he might be able to do. I certainly think he's an upgrade over Bill O'Brien. Uh, but I, again, I think it's going to be interesting. Uh, you know, again, I think the fact that Chip really only gets to focus on calling plays here, I think that's a, a lure as to why he left the UCLA job there. And with all the toys he's got on the offensive side of the ball and what he might be able to do there. I know the UCLA program of late has been more defensively focused and, and they've been better on the defensive side of the ball. It's why they had success under Chip Kelly, in my opinion. But I still think Chip Kelly knows what he's looking at and is going to be able to produce a productive offense there. Uh, like in to your point about Ryan Day, if the offense is struggling once again, I wouldn't be surprised if he steps in there. And for all that we say about Ryan Day, Justin Fields and, and Dwayne Haskins couldn't have been more different quarterbacks. And, and Dave found a way to get the absolute most out of both of those guys. Interesting stuff. My answer to this question actually dovetails into our next topic. So before we get to that, let me remind you, it's time now for us to cruise around the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean. We'll give you our final set of over-unders, not the full list of the SEC, just a small handful we're kind of picking out for conversation purposes. But it's a great reminder that it is a great time to be on board our Dog Nation cruise coming up in April. We're on a lure of the seas. It's an Oasis-class ship. This is the largest uh, category of ship we've ever taken for our Dog Nation cruise, which means this year's Dog Nation cruise bigger and better than it's ever been before. I have had such a good time thinking about the Dog Nation cruise. I'm still reflecting back on fond memories from having been on Icon of the Seas a couple of weeks ago. It's just a great year for Royal Caribbean. Uh, whether you see, if you're watching a video, the Overlook there, a part of Icon of the Seas, sort of a wonderful, wonderful way to kind of enjoy these sort of panoramic ocean views, sort of a luxurious setting, kind of a cool bar right there in the middle, very comfortable lounging uh, chairs to sit in, just unbelievable experience. It's why you want to be on board a Royal Caribbean cruise ship, but hopefully specifically Allure of the Seas with us in April. Jessica Slater, Great travel agent, specially selected for us by Royal Caribbean to get all this done for you. You can give her a call, 770-718-9147. That's 770-718-9147. You can also email her, jslater at dreamvacations.com. She'll get you hooked up, ready to go. Royaldogs.com, also a website she's put together. She wants you on the Dog Nation cruise. She needs you on the Dog Nation cruise. She's going to help you get it done. So make sure you check her out today. Now, kind of our version of cruising around the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean here today, looks at a final set of over-under numbers, just sort of hand-picked teams here. And we just talked about the team that's the biggest threat to UGA. My answer to that question is actually Texas. And Texas is the other team in the SEC sitting with a regular season win total at 10.5. Uh, my answer is the same as it would have been the 2023 season. I thought that Texas was the second-best team in America behind Georgia. Uh, I think that's kind of still true here right now. I think it's kind of telling to me that Steve Sarkeesian – 
could have taken the Alabama job, I believe, if he wanted it, but he didn't want to leave. Now, you can say, well, nobody wants to follow Nick Saban. Perhaps that's true. There's also a chance that Sarkeesian really likes the way that things are setting up for him in Austin right now. There's alignment there. And Sarkeesian, who's had a couple of chances to be a head coach, and for various reasons that hasn't always worked out, seems like he's in a different phase of his career right now. I think Texas at 10.5 is probably an over for me. And I do believe that Texas right now, a team that, by the way, gets a chance to host Georgia, may be the biggest threat overall to UGA. I don't want to overhype them or anything like that. I just say, I would just say of the teams ranked near the top, Texas is one of the ones that I'm pretty high about. Jeff, how about for you? Would you go over or under Texas 10.5 for the upcoming season? Yeah, I really look at Texas as over. Uh, I see two games that they play, really, for me. Is Michigan going to beat them early on? Or that it's going to be continuity with quarterback, head coach. You're going to have new things at Michigan. Of course, Michigan still has some of the inner workings of a pretty good football team, but they're going to have to find a new quarterback. They're going to have to you know, develop maybe a different type of identity. And then it's the Georgia game. I mean, you look at it. And you sit there and you ask a lot of Texas fans, can they get to 11 and one with that schedule? Can you go over that 10 and a half? I think they can. I mean, there's not a really a lot of paralysis by that. Like if, if even if you lost Quinn Ewers for a stretch, they're going to have Arch Manning perhaps to turn to, to get them through a stretch of some co- games inside the Southeastern conference. I know they're going to get beaten up. I love the point that Connor made earlier in our, in our week, in our shows talking about that, this is a team that struggled with Houston. This is a team that struggled with Kansas State in the past. But you see when they lose receivers, they find a new one in Isaiah Bond with some of that, maybe the same transfer portal um, NIL money that A.D. Mitchell once had. I like Texas to go over there. Connor, how about for you? The number is at 10 and a half. Would you lean over or under that for the Longhorns here right now? A uh, dangerous game here. I'm going to get some math involved. I've already said Georgia going 12-0, and 0, so that's one loss for Texas. Their schedule is relatively easy, I think, for an SEC slate. But you're telling me that if I think they're going to go over and I think they're going to lose to to Georgia, which I know Jeff agrees with me. I know B.A. gave a very soft answer on that, so he probably thinks Texas is going to find a way to win that game. (laughs) You're you're telling me that Texas is going to go 3-0 and in games that none of which are played in Austin against Michigan, Oklahoma, and Texas A&M. I don't believe that they're going to win all three of those games. And they get Texas A&M late in the schedule. That's going to be a hypercharged rivalry. I think it's going to mean a lot more to A&M because they have been the established SEC program. They lost the last time these two teams met before Texas left. I think those three games in particular, Texas lost last year to Oklahoma as well. I think those three games, you have to go 3-0 and if you think Texas is going to go over in those games. And I just don't know that they're going to be able to do that. So I've got Texas at 10 and two going the under and to answer BA's follow-up question. I think the team that maybe gives Georgia the most trouble this coming season, I think it's going to be a team they see in the sec championship game or potentially see in the sec championship game. I think it's the team that in the regular season has given Georgia the most problems the last two years. And that's Missouri, Uh, the way that they play. And I know Blake Baker is now the defensive coordinator at LSU, The way that they play on the defensive side of the ball gives Georgia issues. They make things tough. They gum the game up for them. Uh, We'll see if the depth is where it needs to be. This program does a better job than anyone of mining the transfer portal. They've started to bring in some blue chip players. Obviously, Luther Burden is a name that comes to mind. Williams Winieri is a name there. Brady Cook is obviously an established quarterback. I think the team in the SEC that might give Georgia its toughest out 
is actually a team that fortunately won't see on its schedule this season in Missouri. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, obviously, the idea of a Georgia-Missouri SEC championship would be uh, very, very different than I think a lot of people are kind of expecting. But the other point you make about Texas and Texas A&M, A&M is not one of the teams we're picking an over-under for right now, but the total on the Aggies I find to be really weird. It's eight and a half. That's one of the higher numbers you know, in sort of that second tier of the SEC. And I like Mike Elko a lot. I don't know that anybody's going to tell Elko as a coach more so than I am. It's a much better hire, I believe, than Mark Stoops would have been for A&M. But I guess it's Connor Wegman coming back at quarterback. What are we selling on A&M, the idea that you would say dangerous game for Texas? I don't see that. Uh, odds makers would say, you know, a nine and three ish type team. I, I definitely don't see that. Connor, what are we selling on AM other than a pretty sharp coach in Elko that would make that a dangerous game for a team like, like Texas that admittedly I'm pretty high on? What's the selling point on the Aggies there? I, I know they've lost some big names, obviously, Walter Nolan, Evan Stewart. But a lot of those blue chip defensive linemen that they brought in are still, in fact, there for Texas A&M. And I think they're well positioned on the offensive and defensive lines there. They've done a good job developing skill players there. And Connor Wegman, while he's been unable to avoid injury, he is someone who's been around college football and played in some decently big size games. So I think, if you're, again, if you're able to keep him healthy, that's going to be the real key there. But I'm with you. I like Mike Elko a lot. I think he's an incredibly strong coach. I think he's a professional and is going to bring some much-needed stability to that A&M program. And look, I'll say this. It's a rivalry game. Uh, it's a big rivalry game. It might be one of, if not the most anticipated games of the season. And weird things happen in rivalry games. So I think that is absolutely something that should not be overlooked when those two teams meet in the final week of the regular season. Another team with an eight-and-a-half win total, according to FanDuel for the upcoming season, is Tennessee. Jeff, you want to go over or under Tennessee at eight-and-a-half? How about you go that, sit there and you go, where do the wins come from with Tennessee in the 2024 schedule? Um, I, I just – I kind of see the Nico era – I, I don't. I see it bumpy early on. I don't know if they've got the playmakers around him. I see a tougher schedule. Got to remember this Tennessee team lost, I believe, four games last year. Um, I'm going to go under for that one with Tennessee because I don't see a lot of great pieces around Nico in his really first season in the SEC. Um, I'm going to go under there. So. Connor, it's funny. Like I think the Tennessee fans are well within their rights to be excited about Nico Iamaleva uh, for the upcoming season. He, you know, pretty good bowl game, and obviously this is a guy that has gotten a lot of attention, including from NCAA investigators. So I, I think I think that Tennessee fans are right to be optimistic about him. And I'm not trying to be snarky here. He didn't play that great in the bowl game. I mean, for all the talk that the bowl game performance against Iowa generated, a lot more of that was on the ground than through the air. His yards per attempt number that day was not eye popping or anything like that. So. It's sort of a backhanded way of saying I sort of lean over on Tennessee, mostly from the standpoint that I like to have about the same number of overs as unders. And around this category, I'm a little down on – I'm more down on Missouri than you are, for instance, a little bit more down on Ole Miss, and I'm always wrong with the Rebels. Uh, but somebody's got to be over, and so therefore I might look to Tennessee to be one of those teams there in that category. But for all the attention that like Nico is going to get here in his first year as the starting quarterback, the bowl game that a lot of this is based on was not the greatest performance in the history of college football, even though that's what it's been sort of described as. Long story short, are you over or under Tennessee eight and a half? 
Yeah, not to pull a Mike Griffith here, but just looking at the schedule, I don't know where that fourth loss comes from. You know, at Oklahoma is obviously a tough game. At Georgia, we've discussed here is a loss. Home against Alabama, like that's a game Alabama, in my opinion, right now is probably favored in. Um, but where's that fourth loss? Is it NC State in a neutral site? I don't believe so. Is it at Arkansas? I'd love for that to be the case, but I don't. I I think Tennessee would be favored and win that game. And then home against Florida, home against Kentucky, home against Mississippi State at Vanderbilt. I I don't see where that fourth loss is there. And so this to me is really more of a math equation than it necessarily is a belief in Nico or anyone else. Uh, So I like Tennessee at the over at eight and a half. But I imagine that those fine folks in Vegas are setting the plus juice on the under there. And Jeff, I'll say one final point about Tennessee here, and then we'll do one more team. You know, Josh Heupel has been pretty successful for Tennessee, right? I mean, he's recruiting at Tennessee way better than he ever did at UCF. And, you know, for all you want to say about the hype they got in 2022, you know, they did get to the number one spot. They did beat Alabama. I mean, there is something about Heupel that does seem to have a little more staying power than some of his competitors within the SEC. So, you know, I think we're conditioned, like, you look at Florida, that seems like it may be a total disaster. You look at, we're going to get to Auburn in a moment, who knows what Hugh Freeze is building there. There are a couple of teams around the SEC where it looks like they can't even put their shoes on the right feet. In the case of Tennessee, there are at least some sort of remnants of competency that makes you feel like, with a little bit different kind of schedule, maybe they could go 9-3. and uh, do you? How would you respond to that final thought on the balls here? Well, I, I guess the way I look at it is Hypo might be a casualty of just being very good for Tennessee and not great, like not the rocky top-sized expectations. you got to remember, Billy Napier and his boys down in Florida beat Tennessee a year ago. Maybe this is a year for Josh Hypo where you sit there and you go, was that was that Hendon Hooker season? Was that more on Hypo or was that more on Hendon Hooker? You know, Connor was, you know, going through, he was doing some very good mathing there. I look at Kentucky as that team that they could potentially lose uh, a game to because I think Kentucky's got some nice pieces. They kept Deion Walker together. I think JDJ, Jamon Dumas Johnson is going to play great for him. And I think Brock Vandegrift's going to play some good football as well for Kentucky. I think he is going to be a more dangerous all-around weapon at quarterback for Kentucky than they've had the past two years when they've had some really good NFL talents. But I think Brock Vandegrift going against the Georgia defense for two years, he's going to be ready for whatever's thrown at him. And that's what I kind of see with Tennessee. Like you sit there and you go, okay, who are their playmakers? And you go, you go squirrel white. Are they going to have the defense they had a year ago? Remember last year's Tennessee team transferred from a hypocentric passing attack to a run game, defensive team, pass rush team. So I think when I look at Tennessee, I think they're just guilty of being in the category of pretty good SEC team. They're not losing to the Arkansas and the South Carolinas of the world, but then they're not beating the teams that they think they should be rushing the field for consistently. Final team to mention here, and it's Auburn at seven and a half. And I will tell you, I am dangerously close to completely flipping my opinion about Hugh Freeze. I think the Auburn Tigers are having a very strange offseason here right now. So, Connor, I'll just come to you. Seven and a half. You over or under Auburn at seven and a half for the upcoming season? All right. So, again, it's a math thing here. I'm looking at their schedule at Georgia, at Missouri, sandwiched around your bye, home against Oklahoma, 
at Alabama. Hugh Freeze doesn't need it to be an over, but it would behoove him greatly if it were. I, I think that Auburn's going to find a way to get to eight wins. Actually, no, I just remembered a key piece of information here. And again, this is early, so we can change this. B.A., who is their starting quarterback on today in the middle of February? The best I can tell, it's still Peyton Thorne. Yeah, I'm going to take the under here on general principle. Yeah, the other day, Hugh Freeze kind of got cornered by some media types about why they didn't take a transfer quarterback, and he sort of defended Horn, and they brought in a couple of young quarterbacks. I guess there's a chance that one of them could emerge. This is supposed to be what Freeze does, bringing the quarterback. Also, we're led to believe they've got a mountain of NIL cash somewhere Either they can't get anybody to take it or they haven't decided to use it. All of this is very confusing to me because I think as a coach, Hugh Freeze is really good. At least, I mean, personal life, you can say what you want. On the field, I think it sort of speaks for itself. Man, this starts to feel pretty Billy Napier-ish pretty fast if they don't figure something out. And, Jeff, with as Connor alluded to, with Peyton Thorne as your quarterback, I don't know how you figure it out. I really, really don't. Um, I expected to be talking about Auburn as like a nine-win team in year two for Hugh Freeze, uh, especially with the absence of the SEC West schedule. Auburn's one of the team. Their schedules ought to get a bit a little easier, no longer playing the entirety of the SEC West, but it's still pretty tricky, especially compared to the overall talent level, specifically at quarterback. Um, this is one of those that I do reserve the right to change my mind on, but I'm I'm curious about you. Lean right now over, under on seven and a half. I've got to go under. Um, unless Cam Coleman turns out to be Luther Burden plus about five touchdowns in his freshman year. I look at that, I look at the schedule, BA, and I see five losses. I, I think Texas AM will be in better shape. I think they might they might hit a patch where they lose three straight games in the regular season. Remember how bullish we are about Missouri? They hit Missouri, they hit Georgia in a in a patch. They also got Kentucky in the middle of that. You can't tell me Auburn wouldn't have been better with Brock Vandegrift as their quarterback compared to Peyton Thorne. I, I really, you know, and I I know how bullish you've always been about Hugh Freeze, but at what point, what was what were his numbers last year at Auburn, even considering the personnel? I think they had a 90th overall offense in the country. Uh, there's no running back you can point to and say, yeah, that guy's going to get him 1,000 yards. That's a problem at Auburn. Like, they needed to kind of gang up on wide receivers to kind of offset the quarterback problem right now. I don't see they doing I don't see them doing that. They've got Alabama at the end of the year. I don't see year two at Alabama for Hugh Freeze being much better than we've seen so far. So here's a fun little thought exercise. Eight and four, which is what they need to go over, is four and four in the SEC. You assume four non-conference wins and four and four in the SEC. Connor, uh, if you went back and looked at the number of teams that actually go 500 in SEC play, there are a lot fewer teams that go 500 in SEC play than perhaps some people might think. That sort of feels like the kind of thing that ought to be easy to do. But splitting your SEC games is just not a very easy thing to do necessarily. And because of Peyton Thorne, because of the relative absence of what seems to be positive momentum, I don't see how this team could split its SEC games. I really don't. And, like, this is their October slate. At Georgia on October 5th, by week on October 12th, at Missouri on October 19th, at Kentucky on, on October 26th. And I, I think you guys are maybe a good bit higher on Kentucky than I am. 
But that doesn't even include games against Oklahoma, Alabama, and Texas A&M. And so while, yes, you know, their non-conference schedule is, is as soft as it can be, to your point, B.A., that's a really tough SEC slate. And, you know, I think there's a chance they lose all six of those games. Wow. And, and now, you know, will they do that? Probably not. But I think there's a world in which they do. And so you're needing to beat – Arkansas and Vanderbilt, granted both those games are at home and, and are gimmies, to just go two and six, that's a tough sled. And that road schedule, I know that they've, you know, they don't play the SEC West anymore, but getting Georgia, Alabama, Missouri, and Kentucky on the road, that's right up there in my mind with what Georgia's road schedule has to be. And I'll tell you this, you know, this whole idea of we're just going to remake our roster with the spring transfer portal. The next team to do that will be the first. A, you can't bring in SEC guys because that's you know you know banned by a league rule. And B, the overall quality of the spring transfer portal the last couple of years, it's a bunch of guys who found out they weren't starting on their current teams. Like you are not transforming your roster with the spring transfer portal. So I think the situation in Auburn is is really pretty odd right now. And of course, Georgia fans I think probably enjoy that, but uh, a fun conversation. Connor and Jeff here this week. Mike Griffith who had to step away from some work related things. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Uh, I know it's a, a pretty big ask from you all from your time standpoint, but I think our audience has really enjoyed it. I know that I have, and uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to do a little Dog Nation roundtable like this again in the very near future. Uh, but obviously today is a part of Dog Nation Daily presented by Meriwether and Tharp. Certainly appreciate both of your times. So one thing that's not controversial is that our Dog Nation roundtable, I think, was a smashing success. Three strong days of that, a lot of ground covered, and obviously I think that all, you know, for all of that just sort of gets us more ready for the upcoming season. I, I think that's really, really fun. However, there is at least some controversy as we finish our final pre-recorded show today, me back live tomorrow. A lot of you know I don't pretend to be very smart, especially when it comes to things involving math and when I do some pre-recorded shows, one of the most difficult things we do is try to count, at least well, at least for me anyway, trying to count ahead on the Gatorator updater to make sure we have the right number. Allegedly, we've had the wrong number a few days this week. I do believe we have the right day now. So whatever you heard this week, just ignore that. I believe this is the right day now. How long has it been since the lousy, stinking Gators have beaten the Georgia Bulldogs? We believe it's 1,202 days. Now listen. I may not be very good at counting, but Georgia is certainly good at beating up on Florida, and that's all that matters. We will see you tomorrow right here on Dog Nation Daily, presented by Meriwether and Tharp.